We're so thankful you've chosen to tune in on whatever platform you're using, whether Podbean or through Facebook or iTunes. Whatever way you're listening, I just want to say thank you for joining in. We'd love to hear from you, so drop a comment to us or email us at thegrove267 at gmail.com. If you want to know more about us as a ministry, go to hisgrove.com, or you can also check us out on Facebook at Deeply Rooted Ministries in Canton, Texas. We believe God wants to use these messages to spread His truth to a needy world, but primarily a needy church, which needs the truth of the Word to resurrect among us so that Heaven's army will be equipped to win souls and train them up in the Lord. Jesus said if we know the truth, it will set us free. So help us to bring freedom to people's lives by sharing these messages in any way you can. Now to our podcast. Well, welcome back to a, uh, I guess if you have been joining us, maybe your first time listener on this one. Um, welcome, no matter, I guess, where you're coming from and what's going on. I'm excited to be going over this one. This uh, In Luke 13, this is a passionate topic for me because I see... I see so much abuse um, that is out in the church today, and, and maybe abuse is the wrong word, misinformation and misunderstanding regarding some things, and it can even venture into a concept of idolatry. And so this is a passionate one that we're going to get into towards the end of Luke chapter 13. Um, but before that, before we get into that aspect of it, we've got to go through the first part of it. So we're going to get right into Luke chapter 13. Hopefully you guys have, have been joining me. If you haven't listened specifically to our, the two parts of our Luke 12 passage uh, or podcast that we've done, I would encourage you to go listen to those. Uh, while they are standalone, they are um, important in understanding what we're going to be talking about at the beginning of Luke chapter 13. So with that said, let's read. He says, there were some present at that very time who had told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish perish. Now that what he's, what Jesus is trying to get at here is actually a very simple um, truth to understand here. And that is this, it doesn't matter what you've done in this life. If you are outside of Jesus Christ, everybody receives the same punishment. It's all deserving of hell. Everything that's there. In fact, Romans 3.23, we know what that one says. That's part of the Romans road, though I'm not a huge fan of just using the Romans road. We understand, in fact, some of those passages are intended for Christians, not for unbelievers. But I digress. Back to my point. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It doesn't matter how much or how little you have sinned. If you are outside of having a, a relationship with Jesus Christ, then every single person gets the exact same punishment and that is hell in the end and it's not because God wanted you to go there it's because you chose to go there because you rejected what God gave to you so that you didn't have to so that this one is a very simple one all have fallen short of the glory of God everybody has sinned I don't care who you think you are I don't care uh, what you think you've accomplished I don't care if you even in the Catholic Church think about Mary Mary being sinless I'm sorry. Scripture says that she was. In fact, she even calls Jesus her Savior in Luke 2. And so you can go back and read it. Scripture declares that Mary was sinless. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, uh. 
Scripture declares that Mary was not sinless. It declares that she had fallen short of the glory of God and she needed Jesus, her Savior, just as much as anybody else. And everyone who dies outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ will receive the same punishment. And it's not because of anything you did or didn't do in this life as far as sin. It's because you chose to reject the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords as being over your life and having a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Plain and simple. All right, going on. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it Excuse me, and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. So I believe that this is a direct correlation Um, As we're going to find out even in verse 22 that he was traveling towards Jerusalem. Um, I believe it's a direct correlation to the Jews that he's referencing here. For three years, Jesus had his ministry to the Jews. He was seeking fruit from the Jews. He was wanting people to repent and they wouldn't do it. And so as he's talking here, um, God is wanting to cut them down. And Jesus says, let me work on them just for a little bit, right? And if they don't repent... Then well and good. Now, this can have a, if that's not, you know, you might not believe that, and that's fine. I believe that that's kind of the the underlying point he's trying to make here is towards the Jews. We're going to find out towards the end here. Um, But I also think that it has relevance to an individual person. That God has an expiration date on his patience towards us. Does he has have steadfast love? Yes, but Jonah 2.8 says, um, Whoever pays regard to vain idols forsakes his hope of steadfast love. You look at um, Daniel 9.4 and Nehemiah 1.5 and Psalm 25.10. It says that the steadfast love is for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. God has an expiration date on his patience. He has an expiration date on his love towards you. And so the point is, is that you might not realize that. You might think that it's unconditional, but this is a passage that actually proves otherwise. God has a time limit. Now, what that time limit is, I don't think that's specific to just three years but the time limit but the reality is God has a time limit. Don't take advantage or put Christ to the test. Don't put God to the test. Don't take advantage and abuse him. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit because I believe that this can be very true even for a Christian because the vineyard as oftentimes referenced even in the Old Testament and in Jesus's own parables is often referencing the land that belongs to him. It's what's been purchased by him. And so I think that this is, could have an underlying issue for the Jews. I think it could have a, a very direct relation point to people in general. But I think it could also have a relation point to a Christian. And so we've got to be careful with that. Um, to not make this say something that it doesn't, but also to not neglect what it actually does say. Going into verse 10, he says, Now he was teaching one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. Very simple words of faith that Jesus says. He didn't go through the gamut. He didn't have some special prayer that he had written down. And he's like, okay, what do I pray for a disabling spirit? As I've heard some people say, is that there's a specific prayer that you have to pray for. It's faith. Jesus said some specific words here of faith. Woman, you are freed from your disability. 
And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites. I love how Jesus was very subtle. And he oftentimes beat around the bush. You know, he didn't say things for how they were. <laughs> right? No, Jesus was very direct. And he was willing to call people out on the mat. And he was willing to say some harsh things. As we talked about even, was it in Luke chapter 10, when the, the lawyers in verse 45 of chapter 11, when one of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you lawyers also. I mean, Jesus was not some, some guy that just always was gentle and kind. As if that, that's who we're supposed to be as Christians today. You look at Stephen full of the Spirit. You look at Paul full of the Spirit. You look at Jesus full of the Spirit. They said some pretty um, offensive things. And they weren't always kind. And I'm not saying we go around there and we're just jerks to people. But let me just say, sometimes what you're going to say when people need to hear something and it won't be what they want to, sometimes it's just going to be just direct and it's going to be firm and blunt and it's not going to be kind. And here Jesus says, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all of his adversaries were put to shame and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by, by him. Essentially, Jesus comes in and he heals this woman who had belonged to Satan for 18 years. He got to torment her. He got to do whatever he wanted to. And in an instant, she's healed because Jesus saw a suffering woman. And he wanted to bring comfort to her. And so in this passage, you know, he says, I did it on the Sabbath. It doesn't matter. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, as he says from his own mouth. A lot of times, you know, there was a, a, a time I had put a guy in charge. Thank you, babe. Um, my lovely wife just delivered. You want to say Hi. <laughs> she just delivered me some lunch down here at our building. Um, and so, you know, I had this guy that I put in charge of our, our um, outreach ministry. And we were going around knocking on door to door. And the days that, the, or the day that worked for all of us to be able to coordinate and get together consistently was on Saturday. And so there was a guy that came to our fellowship. And um, he was beginning to get into Hebrew Roots movement, which is um, the, a belief in Christ, but wanting to go back to the law. And um, this guy sent out a text to everybody saying, hey, we're going to go out on Saturday. We'd love to have you. And he sent one to this guy. And the guy simply responded with this. There are six days in which work ought to be done. On the seventh day, you're supposed to rest. Now, you might not know it, but Friday night to Saturday night is the actual Sabbath until Constantine um, changed that in roughly early 300 or 300 AD, um, you know, several years after that, but it was roughly in that time frame. Constantine changed it when he combined paganism and Christianity and, and practices of both to form Roman Catholicism. And so this, the Sabbath was changed from that day unto a Sunday in honor of Nimrod, the sun god. And so <clears throat> um, the actual Sabbath is during the day on Saturday. And the guy didn't know what to respond back. He just said, okay, you know, thanks. And, and for me, I'm, I'm looking at that and I'm thinking, is this not the exact same thing, you hypocrites? It's the same thing. 
man, how many people have missed the boat because they think that it's about a regulatory day that we have to keep as a Sabbath instead of realizing that as Hebrews 4 talks on and Romans 14, that it isn't about that anymore. Even 2 Corinthians 6.1, I mean, I could go into and I could show you the illustration that's there that God was prophesying of the coming Christ and the day of salvation that was going to be ours in which God did all the work for us. There was nothing that we did. We didn't do anything. God accomplished everything through Christ for our salvation that we're in. Similar to the first six days, man didn't do anything. God did everything to bring life and creation. And the seventh day, he rested. And man came into what God had done. And in the same way, the Sabbath day is a prophecy of Christ, of what he was going to do. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 11, Come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and you will find what? Rest. Not for your physical bodies, but for your souls. The Sabbath is a prophecy. It was instituted not as a regulatory day that God ultimately just wanted all people to just rest from Friday night to Saturday night. It was a day in which was to be a prophetic day that was foreshadowing the coming of Christ, who God would do everything needed to create life and a spiritual place for us to come into and abide in. And that's why I look at the seventh day as what I have come into in Christ. That's why it still remains. Not as a day for us to keep because Joshua couldn't give the people rest. Jesus is the one who did. And I in him now have rest for my soul. So that's a whole little bunny trail. But it, it is fascinating to me how um, this concept of what Jesus is addressing here. And even in his indignation towards these Pharisees. This concept is still affecting us today. In which people still think it's about an earth, like a physical Sabbath day. And as Romans 14 says, if somebody wants to keep one day as holy, okay, do it and honor the Lord. You want to keep a Sabbath day from Friday night to Saturday night? Go for it. You want to, you want to make this sun, Sunday a Sabbath? Go for it, okay? If you're doing it in honor the Lord, go for it. Um, that's not what the kingdom of heaven is all about. But I will tell you there's more. And I think Jesus is trying to look at them in this, even still under the Old Covenant. New Covenant hasn't even been established yet because Jesus hasn't died yet. Even still under the Old Covenant, Jesus is trying to teach them that there's more than just the Sabbath. And he's trying to show them you're hypocrites. You'll take care of your donkey, but I'm going to take care of one of God's creation that he created her. And I'm going to help her and you say that I'm a sinner. Come on, guys. And so he goes on, he says, he said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like and to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden. It grew and became a tree and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again, he said, <clears throat> to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leaven. And there's, I've heard different teachings on this one. Some I think are pretty absurd, but I think the reality is, is that the kingdom of God, there's going to be growth. There's going to be change. There's going to be things that take place and that the old becomes new and that, you know, uh, things just happen in life as we grow and as we come into this kingdom of heaven that God has given to us through Christ, that it changes who we are. It's not left the same. And so while I think there's probably some other uh, things that we could pull into this and we could extract from this and, uh, you know, extrapolate from the text... 
uh, I think that that's kind of a basic, simple thing that we can understand that when we come into the kingdom of God, we come into what God has accomplished for us through Jesus Christ, and we come into what God has done um, through Him, things change. Things don't remain the same. We grow, we learn, we, we, we understand things in different ways. We have spiritual eyes to see that which we didn't used to see. The old is gone, the new has come, right? That's the concept I think that he's trying to get at. And um, So yeah, he goes on, and this is the part I really wanted to, to kind of hammer on a little bit because it's a, it's a passionate topic for me. Um, and it, the, the inverse of it actually might be a passionate topic for you, and I would encourage you to listen. Listen to what Jesus' own words say. Listen to what he's trying to instruct these Jews of what the truth is of how things are going to be in the end. He went on his way through towns and villages teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. So that's the context. He's on his way to Jerusalem. Okay, So this is about to be the theme of everything that he's teaching. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are few, I'm sorry, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Notice, it's not, um, I never knew you. He says, I do not know where you come from. I don't know what means you came into this place. I don't know what door you came in because you tried to come in through a different way. You didn't come in through the door. You tried to come in through some other way as a thief and a robber as he talks about. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He is the only door that will be recognized when we stand before God the Father. He says, then you will begin to say... We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. Now, that's important to understand who he's talking to and what their point of reference is. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. What is Jesus trying to say here? He's talking to the Jews. And for a spoiler alert, I'll just simply tell you what Jesus is telling them is that I am the door. I am the only way to the Father. And you can try to get in through the law of Moses. You can try to get in through your lineage and think that because you're a Jew, because you were once God's people, because God once called you out, uh, because once God called you His, you think that that's going to be enough that on the day you stand before God, that you didn't have to come in through me. And you're going to say, but, but doesn't it mean something that we're Jews, Jesus? Doesn't it mean something that, that, that we, we were in Jerusalem, we were Israelites, we were people that you had called out? Um, doesn't that mean something? You came to us and you taught in our streets. Notice the point of reference that they're, they're coming is when Jesus was walked in the flesh. This is on the day that they would stand before God and they're going back to the day that Jesus came in the flesh in those three years and taught all throughout Israel. We ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. You came to us, Jesus. That's got to account for something. 
The day that, they, that the Jews are going to stand before God and they didn't want to come in through Jesus, they wanted to come in through some other means, their own lineage, ancestry, the law, whatever it might have been. They wanted to come in through some other way and not through the narrow door, the singularity of Jesus Christ as Lord. They didn't want to come in through that way. And he says, you're going to be on the outside looking in. And you're going to see Gentiles who came from the east and the west and the north and the south. And they're going to be sitting with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you yourselves are going to be perishing outside of it where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. The concept here that he's telling them is that once Christ dies and this new covenant is established and that doorway is open for people to come, including the Gentiles, to come and have access to the Father, that the Jews will no longer be his people. The Jews will no longer be God's, the apple of God's eye, if you will. It'll be the church. And that'll be composed of Jews and Gentiles, where there is no distinction. Ephesians 2 makes it very clear. In fact, a lot of people, I don't think, realize that there was a stone outside of the Jewish courtyard, of the Gentile courtyard leading into it, that said essentially this, that if, if you as a Gentile decide to pass through this door, it'll be at the risk of your own life, because we will kill you. It was called and actually labeled the stone of hostility. And it was there because the law commanded that there was not to be any fellowship or any defilement of Gentile blood, unclean blood getting into this place. And so they set that there as a warning to them to say, we're going to kill you. And they were dead serious about it. But in Ephesians 2, if you go and read it, it talks about that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile. He took the two and he made it into one. I once heard an analogy, and, and uh, you know I have to be respectful because um, the analogy came from people that I am subject to um, in the church that we're in, but it's an analogy that I just can't get behind. And it's an analogy to say that the Jews were the starting quarterback, but because they became unruly and rebellious, God benched them. They're still on the team, but God benched them for the Gentiles. Now the Gentiles are the starting quarterback, and I just don't see that in Scripture. I think it's, it's, it's a, a very much so um, a point of view that has a lot of scripture left out of it. And we're going to get into Romans 11 in just a little bit, which is where the, the verse came from. Is Romans 11, or the analogy came from, I don't see the Jews as being on the team. Because as Romans 8 9 says, if you don't have the spirit of Christ, then you don't belong to him. You're not on the team. The Jews had their chance under the old covenant. But once the new covenant came into establishment, the old was made obsolete, as Hebrews 7, 8, 9, and 10 says. Therefore, the attachment that God had to the people of Israel through that old covenant, the Mosaic covenant that God made with his people at Sinai, is no more. Now the, the Gentiles and the Jews who come in through Jesus Christ, those are his people. And I think he's given them a very clear understanding that just because you're a Jew does not mean that you're going to get in because the doorway is through Christ. It's not through Judaism. It's not through being a Jew and your ancestry and your lineage, your, your descendantry. It's through Christ and him alone. And many people are going to strive to try to get in through some door that's not Jesus Christ. And he says, and you won't be able to get in because you didn't come through me. And if you don't believe me, this is going to get even more clear when we go over Romans 11, but we're going to look at it as he finishes up in this passage. He says, at that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here for Herod wants to kill you. 
And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons to perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. And then listen to what Jesus says. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her her brood under her wings and you were not willing. That's a pretty anti-Calvinistic message Jesus gave. He says how often Jesus wanted to do something, but the people weren't willing. So he didn't do it. Isn't that interesting? He says, behold, your house is forsaken. That word that's used there for forsaken is the Greek word eremos. It means a flock deserted by the shepherd. Lonesome, desolate, solitary, and wilderness. <laughs> I don't know how, how much more clear Jesus gets here. He says, look, I'm going to finish my course. And when I finish my course, your house will be forsaken. It'll be left by the shepherd. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And here's what Jesus is basically stating to them. Until you say that I am who I say that I am, until you say that I am he, until you say that I'm the Christ, you'll never see me again. You'll say I came to you and I taught in your streets and you you ate and drank in in my presence and it's not going to mean anything on that last day you stand before God if you didn't come in through me. Jerusalem, your house is forsaken. It is left desolate. Because the only way that you're going to get in is if you come through me. Now listen to what Romans 11 says. And we're actually going to have a shorter one, it looks like, today. But I'm going to start it in verse um, 11 of chapter 11 in Romans. We're going to go in through, uh, well, we'll go in through 20, 23. He says, so I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? Talking about the Jews. By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Their rejecting of Christ has allowed salvation to come to the Gentiles. He says this, um, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure, meaning the Jews, means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? goes back to what I said, is that the Jews are still allotted an opportunity to be grafted back in. They were the natural branches, and they can be grafted into the natural olive tree, right? He says, if they come back, how much more is it going to mean their full inclusion of coming in through Jesus Christ? This is what he's talking about. But listen to what he goes on to say. Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my, in, my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection, notice the term that Paul uses there, for if their rejection, they have been rejected by God because they are not in Christ, they are, therefore they are not his people, their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Meaning that these Jews now, after the new covenant has been established, they are rejected, forsaken, and they are actually dead. They're not on the team. They don't still have some semblance of life. They still don't have some identity still belonging to God. They are dead, forsaken, and rejected. But they still have a chance, just like anybody else. 
This is what he goes on to say. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Meaning, if they come into Christ and Christ is holy, then so will they be. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant towards the branches. Remember, he's talking to the Gentiles and he says, don't be arrogant towards these Jews. Even though some of them were cut off, some of them believed. And they weren't cut off. They didn't get in because of their ancestry. They got in because of their belief in Jesus Christ as Lord. That's why they're in. The rest of them who didn't believe, they were cut off because the household of the Jews is forsaken. And he goes on, he says, so you Gentiles don't become arrogant towards them as if you're just somehow better than them and now all of a sudden everything belongs to you. No, you have an equal share just as they will when you come into Christ. Just so we talked about previously that everybody gets the same consequence. Doesn't matter how much you sinned or how much you didn't sin. Doesn't matter if you were a Jew or a Gentile. Everybody gets the same consequence if they're not in Christ. When you are in Christ, everybody gets the ultimately the same reward, and that's eternal life in heaven. Doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile. That's why Paul says in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek, because that's not what it's about anymore. The two have now been made one because he has removed the wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. That's talking about the law of Moses. You go look at the Greek on those two words. Of law, commandments, ordinances. Go look at all three of those and you're going to find it is undoubtedly talking about the law of Moses. And it has been abolished. And yes, I'm well aware of Matthew 5. I'd encourage you to study the context of what Jesus has stated in Matthew 5. As as clarifying what was under the law. Not establishing that the law will be in full place for those who are in Christ. Because Ephesians 2 says that in Christ, the law of commandments expressed through ordinances was abolished. For those who aren't in Christ, you're still under it. It's still going. It's still ticking. And you'll be judged by it one day. And it won't be a judgment that you're going to like. But going on, he says this in verse 19. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That's true. They were broken off. Ekopto, the Greek word, it means they were cut off, they were broken off. He goes on in verse 22 to say, cut as branches from a tree. They were not just pruned back, they were literally cut off from the trunk. And they're laying on the ground withering and dying, if not even just dead, as he talked about earlier. Rejected, forsaken, and now dead. But God can bring life from death. And he can graft them back in again, but only through Jesus Christ. But right now, the Jews are branches laying on the ground apart from the trunk. They ain't on the team. He goes on and he says this. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. He's talking to Jewish Christians, or I'm sorry, Gentile Christians who have faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. He says this. And this is very important. It goes into some of what I talked about in Luke chapter 12 in, in the second part of it. He says, so do not become proud, but fear. Well, that's interesting. Why would he tell Gentile Christians who have now come into Christ, why would he tell them to fear? Well, he's about to tell you. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Wait, what does he mean by that? He says in 22, note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, meaning the Jews who didn't believe in Christ. 
but God's kindness towards you, the Gentile Christian who's in Christ currently. This is their, their standing right now is in Christ. That's who the you is referencing. His kindness towards you, provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. Do I need to read that one again? Because he's not talking to Gentile unbelievers. He's talking to the Gentiles who are in Christ. Who have been given access to the Father through Jesus Christ. And he says, you need to learn a lesson. You can go into 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and read 1 through 11 in that passage. And you're going to see that the things that took place to the Jews in the Old Covenant are examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Paul includes himself. We must not put Christ to the test. We must not desire evil as they did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. What was written down and what happened to them is for our instruction. And in the same way, he says, Gentile Christians, beloved, those who are in Christ, I need you to go back and I need you to look at what took place in them because they were God's people too. They were God's people in an old covenant and he cut them off. And he'll do the same to you if you don't continue in the position of Jesus Christ. Now, it might be a new teaching for you, but I'm going to tell you it's truth. He goes on, he says, And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. The premise that he's getting at there is that these unbelieving Jews who don't want to believe in Jesus Christ... God can bring them back. And in fact, He will. There will be some Jews who turn to the Lord throughout all the ages and even the ones to come. There will be Jews who come and God will graft them back in. This is in no way referencing what John Wesley used to believe in Methodists. Um, This is in no way saying that a believer who apostatizes from the faith can be grafted back in. Because Hebrews 6 says that's impossible. You cannot apostatize from the faith And have a chance to come back. But what it is referencing is the Jews. Who once the old covenant. Was made obsolete. And come to have no glory at all. 2 Corinthians 3 and Hebrews 9 and 10 talk about. Once it came to have no glory at all. There's the new covenant. And everything that, that happened in the past. God's willing to overlook. If you would give your life to Christ. He will wipe away those former sins. Doesn't matter what they are. Doesn't matter how bad it is. He will wipe them away. And for the Jew, if they want to come in to the family of God through Jesus Christ, he says, I will graft you back in again. That's what's being referenced there. He's not referencing, as John Wesley believed, a believer who apostatizes and comes back because it is not possible. Hebrews chapter 6, 4 through 6 says, It is impossible. In the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, and then have apostatized, which is what the Greek word means there, it is impossible to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying the Son of Man and holding them up to contempt. It says that's impossible. So apostasy is a real thing. And it is something that can take place, and I believe has taken place to Christians throughout the last 2,000 years. I even know of one. But the point is, guys, the Jews are no longer God's people. They have been cut off, rejected, forsaken, 
and are dead. Those are all words that the, that the Bible uses to describe them. But God still does love them. And is allowing them access to come back in, but only through Jesus Christ. And if they do not come back through Jesus Christ, then one day they will stand before him. And they will see Gentiles reclining at table. What an insult that is to a Jew. Gentiles reclining at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jesus is going to say, I don't know where you're coming from. You ain't mine. You didn't come through me. You don't belong to the Father. So if you're finding yourself wanting to stand with Israel, you're finding yourself wanting to stand with the Jews because you think that they're God's people, as I hear oftentimes way more than I would like, let me just tell you, you're standing with the wrong kingdom. Because the kingdom of God consists of His church in Christ. That's who you need to be standing with. Because Hebrews 12 says that we are the heavenly Jerusalem. God ain't standing with Israel anymore. Do they have a purpose? Sure. They still have a purpose that they have to fulfill. But they are no longer His people. and Do not get that confused. And so, with that said, you all be blessed. And I pray that as you are standing with the church of Jesus Christ, all will go well with you. You all be blessed.